This is Movies, a podcast about the act of cinema. I'm your host, Lores, and back for the third or arguably fourth time now, we have The Critical Unbeliever, and the film that we will be discussing today is Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Little pigs, little pigs, let me come in. We are going to be talking about The Shining tonight. Now, before we started, you had said that there was this theory that had you on the edge of your seat, I believe you said, in those exact terms. <laughs> I was actually immersed in this idea that the the whole of the film is actually about Jack having abused Danny sexually. I've uh, gone through a number of articles by Rob Eger, a number of articles done on I don't remember the the movie uh, movie blog movie blog site but in frames I think that some sometimes you can make a fairly good argument that what what you're seeing is a, a representation of sexual assaults happening in the hotel and then Jack dealing with the like mental repercussions of it for the end of the film Well here's what I want to know why does every conspiracy come back to pedophilia Okay, I have the same thing about the mid-90s, though. I think Jonah Hill made that movie so that he could show a kid with no shirt for two hours. Well, hold on. Jo- uh, Jonah Hill's very creepy. I don't know if you've seen these interviews with him where he's, you know, just fondling boys' shoulders and stuff. But that look, we're not even going to get into this tonight. I believe it. We need to talk about The Shining, which is <laughs> a film that was maligned upon being released in, I believe it was 1980. And... Uh, uh, many critics look at it as one of Kubrick's lesser films overall. Obviously, the horror community loves The Shining. Uh, Stephen King was not so hot on that. But it is a favorite of mine, generally speaking. Is it one of my favorite Kubrick films? I would say so. Uh, what is your general vibe on The Shining, both as a Kubrick film and as a horror film? I think that because Kubrick doesn't make a bunch of horror films it can it doesn't necessarily need to be compared to his whole uh, filmography sure i mean obviously the technical aspects of it and some of the story building but ultimately i think this movie specifically sits in such a, a weird spot in the whole filmography so separate from everything else that i don't think it's like it's not one of his best movies but mm. it's definitely a an amazing movie you know sure uh just 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 in general as a film and as a horror film i think it's better than a lot of things that that get more more critically critically acclaimed mm-hmm. now i want to talk about some of the implications of the film and then we will get into the more conspiratorial aspects which are really abound with this movie Many like to link this movie to the moon landing. There is a a companion film, Room 237, that goes along with this. That is a documentary and features many people's takes on what this movie actually means. Have you seen that? I have. Yeah, I watched it recently. We, I think we talked about it on an earlier episode. And then I, I, I went and watched I think it's been like twice since then. Yeah, and it is very good. It's well made. It's a cut above the average documentary. And you are really impressed with the amount of footage that they do pull from the Kubrick films, considering, you know, at the time that that had come out, I don't think fair use policies and rules were really as well known as they are now, thanks to YouTube. 
So to see images and footage and video incorporated into this film and be manipulated in a particular way, I found impressive. And it definitely added to the visual atmosphere of that movie. The first thing that I want to get into is how do you think this movie? And, and, and actually, I should ask you, have you read the book? I, I actually didn't. I, I never have. I've never been a big Stephen King fan. Really? Why is that? Uh, I I couldn't explain it. I think there are good, very good Stephen King books, but I'm just, I've never been one of those dudes that has to read everything that everybody likes about Stephen King. So I think I've only read like, I have Pet Cemetery, like, um, I think Carrie, that, that, uh, that was one. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's about it. Isn't, isn't Tremors a Stephen King story too? No, no, it's not. (laughs) All right. It's definitely not. Stephen King has a problem with, this particular adaptation of his book, the common complaint that he has had was that he ripped away the spirit of it. It's a cold version of his source material, which I don't necessarily agree with. And many like to make the argument that it is very different from the book, but I think it's actually, I would say it's actually as faithful of an adaptation as King's own adaptation of The Shining that was released in 1997 for ABC, which is an atrocious piece of shit if you've ever seen it. It is remarkably bad. And Stephen Weber... from Wings. Yeah, Stephen Weber. (laughs) He ought to be ashamed of himself. I will say he kind of redeems himself a little bit in the whole Stephen King territory because he does a great narration for the Stephen King's It audiobook that Audible uh, wound up releasing a couple of years back. But that movie is oh oh god, it is near unwatchable. I actually did I didn't know that film existed until probably two thousand ten, something like that. Until the first time that I saw it, wretched film. Yeah, I think they tried to really bury it once it premiered. See, ABC was still in this phase where they were doing like movie of the week type stuff, and they yeah. gradually faded that out with miniseries or TV movies, whatever you would want to call them. They did like the Langoliers. The Stand was one that was really popular and well-received at the time. It had like Molly Ringwald, Gary Sinise. The Shining came at sort of the tail end of that period. I think the final one might have been Rose Red, which was a haunted house uh, miniseries that Stephen King had penned that wasn't really based on any of his previous material. But The Shining is probably the one glaring example of one that was terrible at the time and is terrible to this day. But, I mean, honestly, if you go back to any single one of them, they're all pretty dated, to say the least. Yeah. uh, When the TV miniseries, being a closer adaptation of Stephen King's book, actually makes Stephen King's book seem shittier than going off of Kubrick's film yeah it does. It, it's it it seems less appealing to go back and read the the book that the film was based off of because of how bad that film is and maybe it's a better choice of of Kubrick to to make the creative changes he made for the medium he was working in rather than King demanding that something be adapted almost directly like is there's like a symbolism that doesn't necessarily work that come from books like I know a reference that people make about the the book is that um, fire hydrants, while benign for some reason, were horrifying for Danny inside of the book. And it's supposed to be this juxtaposition of something that 
is while utilitarian and not necessarily dangerous, uh, becomes frightening as the rest of the, the the book has a lot of those themes and obviously the movies too. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that translates well when you when you imagine that on film, right? You know, so it's just a it's Kubrick being smarter than King. Well, I don't know if it's Kubrick being smarter than King necessarily, so much as being more well-versed in having a mind for the medium that he was operating in. Obviously, Stephen King is a, a master of the novel and writing in general, regardless if you think his books are poppy trash or, or, or whatever it might be. He has a, a much better understanding of that medium than 99.9% of the population. And I think Kubrick was the same way. They were two masters of their own particular categories. And when it came to, you know, it, it, I'm just thinking back to like the early aughts and you would kind of read over these Stephen King message boards and, and just film message boards in general. And it would be a legitimate debate before we had Rotten Tomatoes in these film uh, review uh, aggregators where people would be like, OK, well, yeah, the 1980 Shining is objectively speaking the better movie, but this version was more faithful to the material, which, again, I don't necessarily agree with. Mm-hmm. And that would somehow gain it points. Like there, there, was a, there was a real argument to make that somehow if something was more faithful to the book or featured more of the book, that this would be equivalent or, or good or, or somehow raise its status from where it would be otherwise. I don't yeah I, I don't know why the two wouldn't be able to stand alone as as representations of storytelling within their you know within their original mediums mm-hmm. just because it, it you know the odyssey probably if you make that if you make the odyssey in in 1971 it's probably not as good as it was in the year that it was made you know, and when it was written down there's probably a lot of aspects to a lot of great stories a lot of great written stories that aren't going to translate well into a film and being a direct adaptation would only do a detriment to it you know it's it's only going to hurt the reputation of the, the story in general if i if uh, writers and directors stick so closely to the source material that they can't see when something doesn't work for what they're trying to do can you think of a movie off the top of your head that suffers directly because of that i think and this is going to be weird. I think uh, Harry Potter stays so close to, especially the the end of Harry Potter, knowing that it's a rushed work, um, and not necessarily the original ending that's planned. Mm-hmm. And when the when the pieces start moving for you know Harry to die and the relationship that builds between uh, Ron and Hermione in those final two films, they're so dead on with what happens in the books. And like like I've said before, I don't actually like the books or the films. Sure. I think that because they hit beat for beat, almost everything that happens in those last, in in the, the last few chapters of the book for the final acts of the, the film, it, it makes for it for first and foremost, the samey feeling. If you've already experienced the, the written version of it and you're just seeing it happen the same way that, that you read it, it's kind of samey. And, it takes away the the idea of the relationship with the imagination that the story comes because if you alter it just a little bit you have somebody else's imagination being played out in front of you rather than taking this like cold direct approach to what somebody's ha- has explained already mm-hmm. i absolutely agree 
one of the things off the top of my head that I feel, you, you know, you, you, you see these almost illegitimate arguments when it comes to cinema, where people will try to make the case for something from a book that kind of like the whole fire hydrant angle that you were talking about with The Shining wouldn't necessarily make sense for the film. Like Watchmen, for example. The original text of Watchmen has a, it's well, it's an artificial squid monster that wipes out a good portion of New York City. People wanted that for the movie. And I thought it was crazy that they would even feature Bubastis, which was Ozymandias' weird hybrid dog cat yeah yeah it was like a tiger or (laughs) or something and it just felt so out of place just seeing a a quick shot of that Mm -hmm. that if they had ushered in a squid it would have sucked the air right out of the movie and it would have ruined the whole thing it would have been so out of place uh a movie that i had seen from 2018 that felt like it maybe suffered and, and granted i did not read the original uh source material of this movie was hold the dark Something that feels like it tries to rely on the fact that the people watching this movie happen to have read the book. And I think a lot of adaptations fall victim to that as well, is like thinking that, oh, our audience here is already going to be familiar with the material. And so they take a more, I don't want to call it a lazy approach, because I don't know if it necessarily is lazy, but it's a more, they're gearing it more towards them rather than the general consumer, which... sure. I think you can make arguments in cases for and against. I I think a big example of that would be Avengers Infinity War. That relies heavily on the idea that everyone watching that has watched all the other films to that point. Mm -hmm. And I I view that as a a con, a a negative for that movie. But I don't know. I I wanted to mention that I think First First Blood was one one of the times that the source material and the film were different. And they actually both benefit from being different from each other. The uh, first blood, when you actually read the 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 book, to me, Dave Morrell's book, it has a different Rambo character, mm-hmm. and it really builds the this the over the top and crazy like war killer that I think a lot of people imagine from Rambo uh, thirty years later. But when you actually watch First Blood, you get a more restrained you know character study. To become these, what, what, like standalone arcs, you know, to to help you understand the the actually rich world of Rambo, which I know it sounds weird for some people, but it exists. It exists. That sounds almost familiar. In that, I don't know if you read the Dexter books based on the, mm-hmm. the you know the, the the Showtime series Dexter. Well, they took the first book of that and they adapted it to the first season and they kind of drew elements from the second book for the second season. And then it just goes off into a completely separate direction and it's utterly retarded for the books. <laughs> uh, it doesn't get much better for the TV show, but yeah, that, that, that sounds almost familiar to that. Uh, another thing that just came to mind was Salem's lot. Oh yeah. Sa- yeah, yeah. Salem's lot is another King book that was adapted not too long before the shining came out. I believe it came out in 78 and was a CBS two-night made-for-TV movie. And Toby Hooper directed that. I think that is one of the best horror films ever made, one of the best King adaptations that there happens to be around. Barlow, the vampire from the book, the head vampire, is this terrifying, 
clone of Nosferatu in that movie. And it's not original. He's literally just like a grunting menace, essentially. But he looks <laughs> scary. And then right. eventually TNT got the rights to do Salem's Lot in 2004 or 5, I believe it was. They had Rob Lowe and they brought in Rutger Hauer to play Barlow, who was like this suave, blonde-haired, Eastern European vampire guy. And it was just a mess. It was a total piece of shit. So uh, I, I think we have made a sufficient case here that straying from the book, I, I would actually make the argument is more often than not a positive when it comes Absolutely. to making these movies. Absolutely. And if you're lucky enough to have someone with the eye for film like Kubrick, you actually get something that makes every everybody should make everybody happy. And off the top of my head, the things that really stick out to me as aspects of the book that were featured in maybe the miniseries and weren't added to the movie are relatively minuscule. As in, I don't think in this movie, Jack Torrance is an illegitimate father to Danny. In the book, he's his stepfather. There's also the aspect of... Uh, well, do they get into the whole child abuse aspect for Kubrick's The Shining? Because in the book, no. he gets drunk, he breaks Danny's arm, he feels terrible about mm -hmm. it. I think something like that it might be mentioned in passing by Shelley Duvall's character when that social worker lady or the doctor comes through and starts analyzing Danny after he has like a fit or something. That actually fits in what I was talking about earlier. There's that aspect. And then another aspect happens to be the ending. The ending is quite different, and the fates of the characters are slightly different from what we get here in Kubrick's movie. And I think this is actually superior, where you have, like, hedge monsters that go after them. And that obviously, mm -hmm. that would have looked ridiculous, especially in 1980. Uh, Jack is not, uh, you know, lost in the hedge maze, and, you know, he's not freezing to death. Rather, the Overlook, I believe, blows up, and he dies in the boiler room. And our pal Scatman Crothers would have survived had right. this book had the book been properly adapted by Kubrick. No, it did did it? I, I could I could be wrong. Didn't Kubrick like film shots? Didn't he film scenes for that particular ending? Or I I could be wrong. I saw um like screen screen grabs that looked like a scene of the car um the hotel on fire. I don't know if that was maybe like a mock-up somebody else did and it's just it burned in my memory. But honestly, that, that sounds like a real cop-out, like, like ending for a film. I guess in a, uh, if it was written, it would be more interesting because it's more descript. But ju just in having like the, uh, the a boiler room fire take out the maybe possessed and or crazy you know, the ch child killing monster that was just terrorizing you for the last however long in the film and have them just like eliminated in that way is, is kind of like the easy way out. One of the things that makes the film really good is that the lack of other people always gives you the feeling as if there was just a slaughter. I know only one guy dies, mm -hmm. but because it's so empty the whole time, it feels like, oh, well, obviously Jack's already killed everybody. The, it, it it always has that that presence so that's what i mean is that you you already imagine jack being the the crazy slaughterer that he pretty much is trying to be right now right well he does embody that spirit that the house puts out 
Mm -hmm. Uh, And, uh, you know, it's kind of funny if you take a look at the miniseries, because Jack has that moment of redemption in the book where it's more of a sacrifice that he's making. That's why the whole overlook goes up in flames. And then he visits Danny at his graduation as a ghost. And he's like, I'm so proud of you, slugger. And it's a beautiful (laughs) moment. I believe Kubrick shot that as well. I don't know. The ghost Uh, dad ending. I like it. Yeah, yeah. But just to touch on the original ending, I don't believe that was in the script or shot. There was additional footage to the end of The Shining where... I think maybe Wendy or Danny wakes up in a hospital bed and a doctor or somebody is going over a lot of the facts with them. And it just seems kind of redundant. And that's why it was ultimately cut. That footage resurfaced maybe about three or four years ago at some uh, showing of the movie. Maybe it was at like an Alamo draft house or one of these like special screenings that they put together. But uh, to my knowledge, I don't think that they were going for the, original book ending or that they shot anything for it is entirely possible though. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I could be wrong. I don't necessarily know if I, I might've seen just a mock-up of somebody saying like, this is what the ending could have been, but I, I recall seeing that image or maybe even imagining it and just knowing that that's an inferior ending to the one that we got because or pr- primarily because Jack's death, that fro- the, you know, the frozen staring out into the distance, that is, an iconic moment that you, if you recreate in any film, even for a moment or like South Park did. And even for a moment, everybody knows what you're, what you're hearkening back to. And it, it is like almost a a trope now to make that a bit of a joke. And I don't think that would have happened with an ending where a boiler room fire uh, burns Jack alive, you know, and, and burns down the overlook hotel. And it, the the imagining the placing of just like dr- watching the car drive off like there okay hey we're fine we're driving home now with the building on fire in the back is kind of a is kind of a dull ending in comparison to I, I think what we got because personally I think this is one of the most suspenseful movies like e- e- ever from beginning to end it has the right amount of like a uncanny valley and. uh a, a suspenseful score, a, a horrifying score, actually, mm-hmm. and terrifying imagery constantly. And it's done in different ways that is unique to Kubrick. You know, when I was younger, when I was in my teens or when I was a kid, I had seen The Shining a handful of times. And I knew that everyone talked about it as, oh, it's one of the scariest movies. And, you know, maybe it is, but I never found it particularly terrifying you know the exorcist is one that really got to me both in terms of visuals and just the psychology of it but as you get older i think you start to understand why it might be considered one of the scariest films ever made because it does operate almost exclusively on a psychological level where it makes you doubt aspects of the film that are occurring to these characters and there was always a hot debate about, oh, well, is this actually haunted or is it just in their heads? I think you can conclusively say that there is an actual haunting at the Overlook. I, I, I think the fact that, uh, you know, it, it's been talked about to death, of course, but the fact that Jack, Jack is let out of that pantry mm-hmm. is one, it's 100% conclusive that there's ghosts in the Overlook. Would, would you agree yeah. or disagree? Or do you think there's actually room for debate in spite of that? Well, see, Jack 
does actually get drunk when he goes when he goes into uh, the gold room and he gets at, he's at the bar. Yeah, and he's having drinks. He does actually get drunk. Uh, somebody is pouring the liquor, and he himself isn't pouring the liquor. Mm-hmm. So I mean, there, there's clues um, to 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 validate the supernatural claim constantly. Uh, I think it's fun to say like, well, maybe he just went crazy. Maybe this is you, you know. Um, it, like intense hallucinations, shared hallucinations from the group and things like that. But I think it, I think the film is done well enough to say, hey, look, there's a supernatural element. It's sort of explained in some light exposition here and there. Um, it gives you some, you know, uh, a little bit of a background so that you can you can understand that this is a terrifying place. You already kind of buy into the haunted aspect. And then by leaving it alone, I mean, that kind of makes it more... See, I guess terrifying is the right word, but sus- like suspenseful, mm-hmm. um, cr- like creepy, I guess is another thing. Like, be- because not knowing necessarily you're going to get a, a, a ghost just to just pop out and like do something. Or if you're going to get just Jack being exponentially more crazy or making out. So that another scene is whenever he's making out with the rotted woman from the bathtub. In that moment, it very much feels like he's just hallucinating but if if we're thinking about crafting a narrative about a haunted a haunted house making somebody think that they might hallucinating is might might be hallucinating is a better psychological trip than just making them hallucinate right and we do pick up on a theme of sorts with jack gradually not necessarily losing his sanity but growing more and more attached or detached rather is what I meant to say uh, from rationality, the longer he stays at the overlook. And uh, you know, there's even the seed of that in the very beginning where he's talking to uh, the man who runs the overlook. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, you, there's absolutely that, that plausibility that it could entirely be a delusion of some sort, even though it does align with, Oh, well, there was a woman strang- strangling Danny earlier, and then he's got these marks around his neck. And you can explain away much of that, but I think, yeah, I, I, I think the pantry and maybe, uh, sh- uh, what the fuck is her name? I, ke- I keep almost calling her Shelly Duvall. Uh, Wendy, Wendy. Wendy. Wendy seeing the apparitions toward the conclusion of the film. Yeah. Uh, do kind of solidify that. Well, I think I think what people say about that is that they're they're having shared allu- allu- excuse me shared hallucinations in right. the same way in like Mothman prophecies, right? You know, right. Something similar to that, but it it would be, um, I I think it would work negatively for the narrative to explicitly say like that one's a ghost and that one's a hallucination, instead of just like what Kubrick does, he he. Very, very much tells you, hey, this is a haunted place, but then lets you be so confused throughout the film and not know. In some cases, through my first few viewings, I still wasn't sure if this old man really was getting a BJ from the bear or if that was Wendy uh, seeing a ghost, if that was Wendy hallucinating. Was the hotel empty? Were some of these people there? Like th- those themes are hard to understand, and in your initial watch throughs or when you're younger, and it, it's it's not out of the realm of possibility. You know, have you heard about how if you spend an extended period of time with somebody who has schizophrenia, that you will start to 
pick up certain traits that that person may have, or it almost sure. becomes uh, almost like you're, you're, you're catching certain brain malfunctions. It would be just by a uh, 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 consequence of spending time with that person where maybe you will start to understand things that they understand that you or I would not understand. Uh, so yeah, that's entirely plausible. That avenue isn't really explored prior to that. There's nothing that would set that up aside from maybe someone uh, drawing that conclusion on their own. To take things in another direction, do you know anything about uh, what Stanley Kubrick's beliefs might have been as far as any kind of spirituality or uh, you know an afterlife? Because from what I know, I know that he was. Uh, born and raised uh, Jewish, wasn't religious though, um, and may have been atheist or agnostic. Yeah, I I, I think I recall seeing somebody um, or seeing some notes regarding an individual like infatuation with Native American spirituality. Yeah. And even like the the earlier shots, there's like Native American, very Native American esque chanting playing. That opening score sounds like a vapor wave version of some Native American rain dance, you know. Um, and it's it's absolutely horrifying that that opening score, they, things like that, references um, to to different types of animals, specific use of like bears, stuff like that, kind of makes me think that maybe at the time he was um, exploring the concept of like indigenous cultures being represented in films in different ways. I see some of his contemporaries were like really on that kick right at that same time. Um, And it it would add to some of the theories about the film being about like Western, like the Western empire, essentially Western, excuse me, imperialization and the use of like the gold broom and things like that. Um, So yeah, I, I, Personally, that's been my take for long t- uh, the longest time. Is that a lot of what we're supposed to be experiencing is Kubrick's interpretation of like a uh, like a Native American haunting type curse. Mm-hmm. And I do think that that is actually one of the only credible theories regarding The Shining is that whole Native American aspect. Where are you dying over there? Are you okay? I'm good. I'm so sorry. I tried to mute it. I know. I appreciate that. So it won't be uh, <laughs> something I need to cut, but it looked like you were about to pass out there. Jesus <laughs> I almost did, dude. I don't know what happened. Yeah. Um, I, I was just talking about the, uh, the Native American themes that happened to run through this movie and the nods and, uh, you know, subtle winks toward uh, talks of like genocide and whatnot that Kubrick insists throughout the film. I think that would probably be the only credible theory from room, what was it, 237, 247? Mm-hmm. I don't know. It doesn't matter. The only real credible theory that, that might be out there, that I'm aware of anyway, maybe you could enlighten me on something different that maybe aligns with that. Uh, or you could delve into this this Jack Torrance child abuser theory. Well, I I kind of like the um, gold theory and like the concept of this being a uh, sort of like take on describing the the trouble that the Western Empire caused, you know, the imperialization of the West, mm-hmm. um, especially in the the like the the gold room in itself, the in the ballroom, the walls, the way that the pattern is in the walls. Right, this is a set made by Kubrick, the most you know attention to detail and meticulous director ever. 
each each little spot looks like a, a group of gold bars set up, right? And it um that that visually reminds me so much of that old uh, imaginary Fort Knox vault, you know, and this big big room with just walls and walls of gold bars everywhere, and only the the most expensive and and uh, richest high class people are even aware that that vault is somewhere. And you you could you could kind of get hints that Kubrick is really taking a dig at how easy Western Western culture has made it for certain groups of people and how other groups of people could be just absolutely decimated by the fact that those people get to have those lives. Maybe they don't do something explicitly, um, but definitely feels like a, a take on on I, like how bad the rich have become. And that's in the seventies. I, I could imagine what a guy like Kubrick would have to say about twenty nineteen if that was what he was trying to to convey to us then. Mm-hmm. But so here's the thing about the Jack and and Danny situation is that if the house isn't haunted, and Jack is going down this this psychological spiral where he's he's losing elements of himself. The the scene where Danny comes into the bedroom with Jack and they have a quick moment that he embraces him, um, that very much seems like the first part of like the next thing. The next thing that happens is in my mind, you would think that Jack assaults Danny in some way, because not long after that is when you have Danny in his Apollo sweater and he comes into the the hall, you know, Jack. At this point, he's like losing his shit. He's passed out on his uh, uh, um, typewriter, and he's having the horrible dream that he comes awake, like awake from. You know, mm-hmm. Wendy has to wake him up, and when Jack comes in, and his his throat is bruised, and he's sucking on his thumb. I mean, that in- indicates to me. I I kind of believe in this theory, and that that indicates to me that it's possible that Jack may have made Danny uh, blow him and. Ch- you know and choked him out at the same time and danny especially sucking his thumb with the with the way the rocket ship uh, very much looks is a phallic symbol looks very much like it's pointing directly at his face um when wendy get, picks danny up and starts screaming like you did this you monster talking directly to jack who very much seemed like he was trying to to uh, like play off like yeah it was definitely a ghost that did it whenever she approached him about it at first like that's oh wendy that sure is terrible can't believe you said a ghost did it like that's really how he comes off in those moments and there's hmm. different there's different times too so uh the way they're framed the scene of danny brushing his teeth when when it comes when it pushes in on danny his front half is blocked out by the corridor of the bathroom and only his back half is exposed as if he's bending over something, which is the exact same profile that you encounter when you see the bear and the old man framed the exact same way in the corridor with the bear bent over in the exact same way with only that much showing of him. Now he of course pulls up and looks at and looks at you or Wendy, but you know, directly at the camera Jack has a, a same, a similar posture and framing used whenever he is passed out on his uh, key, excuse, keyboard <laughs> typewriter and it's pushing in on him. It's the, it's the same framing, same posture. 
And those things play at certain beats with a certain tone to it that suggests that they could be connected. They they feel like they're they're both framed, filmed, and sound designed to be very similar in the way that they play. It's 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 things like that, and then like small symbols here and there of like uh, one one person pointed out that Danny has two bears in a picture above his bed, and again these are all. 100% set pieces that you know Stanley Kubrick picked. He's not going to put something in the frame um, that's like doesn't belong there. So it either builds the aesthetic of a young boy's room or it's a direct reference to another bear picture inside the film that shows a standing bear and a smaller bear and the standing bear like looming over the smaller bear. I don't know if I buy into this theory just based on the premises that there's no and obviously if you're a sexual abuser and you're abusing children, there's there, you, your your fucking wires are all mixed up uh, mm. to begin with. But there's no real illusion that Jack might be attracted to the male body. But there actually is something that is just a little thing uh, that uh, is one of these background aspects that you can only really catch if you freeze frame or whatever. He is reading a playgirl when everything's mm-hmm. getting cleared and they're moving in. So it's not, I, I, I guess, because I, I was literally about to dismiss this whole theory based upon that alone, but there is that one little throwaway aspect as well. Sure. Uh, but what, I mean, Kubrick does explore multiple ideas in his films, yes, but I feel like they usually coalesce. So we can almost verify the whole Native American Western Empire aspect. That goes hand in hand. I don't know where this would come from, though. Right, yeah. Uh, well, if it was something that's in the film, it would play on the concept of uh, what, what I mean, there's a, a rumor that's been in Hollywood for like 50 years that uh, writers, directors, actors, and producers ex, you know, exploit children very frequently. So if this was Kubrick taking uh, a work from Stephen King that is about a creative mind that it's not too far from his line of work, um, you know, spiraling out of control, losing their shit. It wouldn't be uh, too far fetched for him to include themes within the community that he was in, if that was something that was going on. So it would, it would be, it, it's a far. I agree that it's like a far fetched theory, um, but it, it is. If if the all the outside pieces of his life work the right way. It's a really compelling one for a uh, a hid a hidden encoded message. I don't think it's that far fetched. I think on paper it sounds extremely far fetched, but you laid out some pretty compelling elements, and there is a weird sexual aspect to many of the ghosts that are in the Overlook Hotel. Where that is not something that I would say conclusively is a hundred percent off. So. I, I I don't know. It, it's interesting for certain, but at the same time, uh, you know, I'm just picturing the same conspiracy people talking about eyes wide shut and the child trafficking deleted scenes that never existed, you know, and, and them reaching into the the shining pod essentially and trying to dip that into that as well. Um, I don't I don't know if that that's in, something that was actually in there or or if these were maybe. Uh, meant to be seen this way 
obviously there was that child abuse, not sexual abuse, but just regular child abuse aspect that uh, was either uh, omitted or downplayed heavily in this version of the film. So I don't know. It, it's entirely plausible. I, I, sure. I, like I said, I would, I would not dismiss it. Um, I don't know. It's interesting. Do you have anything else as far as conspiracies go that you think might have some kind of credibility? No, not necessarily. I, there's like, you know, there's a lot, it's a Kubrick film. So a lot of people have a lot of interpretations and a lot of, uh, conspiracies. I think that for, for like what you said, what we can confirm in and by itself, the fact that he's exploring, um, concepts of like trying to communicate a message about maybe native American genocide and using native American spirit, spiritualization and imagery, uh, that, that alone is, but like controversial at that in around that time you had uh the native american occup, occup, occupation of like alcatraz um and a lot of native based protests that were going on right around that time uh you could say you know marlon brando campaigning for more native americans in film at the time uh that's it, it would be perfect for the zeitgeist mm-hmm. it really would it's very interesting um you know they're doing a sequel to the shining that is supposed to come out either this year or next year that the guy who did Gerald's game for Netflix, which was a terrible movie that a lot of people (laughs) enjoyed. uh, He, he happens to be writing and directing. And I know they were talking for a real long time about doing a prequel to the shining. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about that? Well, so I like exploring the world of the over overwatch hotel. It's overlook. Overlook. I may, I mix them up. I, I like exploring the world. I like this um, living building, you know, that inhabited by these like really obscure, uh, you know, ghosts or demons, however you want to make them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I like that concept. I don't necessarily think that just just saying like this is the Shining Two is the right way to go about looking at exploring that content i think that you could very easily take any number of of stories and sort of work them into this concept of this you know living haunted house and have something interesting to say out of it but just saying two seems like a more or less just an attempt to get you to watch it rather than an attempt to tell a good story well i i think they're going to be using doctor sleep as the template and that was the novel that Stephen King came out with back in I want to say 2011 or 2012 mm-hmm. and that has a great opening 100 pages or so before it decides to take a dive into pure fantasy and becomes really just not compelling uh it has a it, kind of an interesting premise where it has a grown-up Danny Torrance working for hospice and helping older people or sick people pass over um but then it just gets ridiculous, and uh, it's an utter travesty. I hope they deviate from the book as much as possible, but I don't even trust the guy that's helming it because I don't find him to be a competent director. And also, if you're going to do, to my knowledge, what's going to be the first sequel to any of Kubrick's work, maybe hire a better director. I don't know. Yeah, at least at least start there, right? Because <clears throat> this... The- this type of director is a type of guy that would take something like the the Danny and Tony thing, right? Because it isn't in the book. 
um, Tony is Danny from the future, right? Isn't that how that's supposed to be? Tony is a... Actually, you know what? Maybe... Yeah, actually, I think you're actually correct. That, that, that's an, another thing, too, is so much of the the world that is the Overlook Hotel is uh, eerie, creepy, and suspenseful because of the way it is, right? The, the symmetrical patterns, the right angles, absolutely everywhere, all the right angles, super... Super jarring and confusing layout of the hotel. Just, just to interrupt yes. you. You are officially correct. Yes, Tony is Danny uh, as an adult. Yeah, that that's what I thought. I remember hearing, which I I almost thank Kubrick for not explaining that in the film. Mm-hmm. <coughs> <coughs> Shit, dude, I'm so sorry, man. Oh, don't worry about I'm it. So sorry. I, I don't know what's going on. You just edit that out. Yeah. I I think that would have added an extra level of complication if he had decided to delve into explaining that. Yeah. So it, I agree. It reminds me of that movie uh, Frequency, right? Where that guy, the, 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 was it mm. Dennis Quaid calls yeah. his son from, from the Deadland or something like that? Or vice versa. I haven't seen a movie in forever, but it just mm. comes off as, as, kind of cheesy and it's again an element that probably works well for a book but being played out in the film isn't great but it but that adds to the suspense of the whole film is so if you don't know that tony is daddy from the future this little kid also has a ghost that he perceives that, that he thinks lives inside of him you know and and goes into a belly which uh uh in uh, along with that conspiracy earlier the worm and going into his belly actually is a, a verbal reference that they use to the incident between Jack and Danny. Mm. Um, but he, but even still, like the the way the world of the Overlook Hotel is, it's is so eerie that if you were just taking a camera and manipulating the halls, it would be just you know walking up and down the halls, looking at the poorly spaced rooms that don't make any sense, that the hallways that go maybe to nowhere. Uh, that stuff is it, it disorients you as the viewer and adds to how like like not scary but suspenseful and creepy the film is so the film is creepy and eerie the whole time and it's honestly a lot of the world i don't think other people can would capture it as well i agree do you think that stanley kubrick turned shelley duvall into a mentally ill lunatic no i i think <laughs> if you no, I don't think that he tormented her into being the same exact person she was in some aspects. You know, when I watched um, uh, Vivian Kubrick's the, the making of The Shining, and I think sometimes maybe Kubrick was actually annoyed with her. I think maybe she was actually difficult to work with on occasion. And maybe garnered some of that attention, and also maybe it was the thing that she needed as an actor. I've I've read some of her interviews where she said that she preferred uh, being olive oil after that because she thought olive oil had more depth. And I I I very seriously think that she might have misinterpreted Wendy's role in the film if she thinks that Wendy is like so one dimensional that she just screams. Because she's very much having her whole world brought down. She's not near her home. Her kid is in danger. She is in danger. The man that she loves is in danger. The place that she lives in, she has now become privy to the fact might want her dead. 
And I thought Shelley Duvall did a good job of portraying that character. And if Kubrick has to like yell at you a couple times to get that movie to where it got to, then fuck, it's worth it. Shut up. Do you think that Stanley Kubrick drove Shelley Duvall into becoming a big fat oaf and eating her feelings? Yeah, that's his fault. <laughs> that's his fault. Actually, I saw B-roll of him shoving cupcakes at her throat. It's like, mm-hmm. act better, act mm. better. And she just couldn't do it. Very unfortunate. I mean, so go ahead. I was just going to say, um, I was going to say, what do you think he's ultimately trying to communicate with this movie? Because it, it seems like there is a lot going on beneath the surface, especially with this one compared to his other films. What is the big takeaway that one should maybe get after 10 viewings of The Shining? Like that that's a hard one to pin down maybe um well in your opinion like 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 for for, for me personally i kind of see it as a, a what's that 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 silver spoon song right the opportunity of losing out on time with your family time doing things that you love time retaining your personality being too driven to do your work or to get something done requiring too much of a writer in order to give the best possible performance and losing yourself in your work so much that you can't maintain the relationships that you had before. I think that when you see somebody as intelligent and meticulous as Stanley Kubrick or a writer as prolific as Stephen King, and you get a story that very much shows somebody very similar to them, losing their shit it's hard to not see the parallels between them and that character and -hmm. i think that even choosing someone like jack nicholson who you know gets real hyped up really puts himself like in this mindset of a character uh gets is weird with people trying to to maintain the right acting um kind of flavor in his personality i think that's choosing someone like him gives more credit to maybe that idea that this is one of those times that an artist is is screaming back at the world like like you can lose yourself doing what I've done so far, you know. And that you know that it's I find it very interesting that Kubrick leaned into the craziness more in that Stephen King always viewed Jack as somebody that maybe you should have been caught off guard by as someone losing his mind whereas Kubrick was like no, this this is a horror movie. We're going to be with this guy throughout the entire film and gradually see this decay of his mental stability. Let's just jump directly into that mold with somebody who you can already expect right off the bat is going to be nuts. Um, and I, I, I think that that's also actually one of the reasons why this version of The Shining works and the 1997-1998 miniseries does not. All due respect to Stephen Weber. He's definitely not the worst aspect of that particular movie. But his Jack Torrance feels less authentic to me. I think that the the setting and aesthetic to deliver that story is super perfect. But to compare it to like other horror films for a second, I don't know exactly what you're going to talk about, but... Um, when you consider things like Amityville horror or some of the, the not so great horror films from kind of around the same time, 
especially with the idea of possession. If there's a pre-story explained, like, hey, this guy did this thing in this house, you kind of believe, you, you kind of expect the character to just do exactly those things. You know, they get possessed by that demon or the, by that ghost. If that, that guy, before he killed himself, you know, chopped his wife up and hung his son, you expect this character to do exactly that. And the fact that Jack doesn't do exactly the same thing that the, you know, the, the guy before him did that he's not playing out a, a super predictable line to, to insanity, but instead he's frequently encounter encountering something that, you know, breaks him a little bit more, but he tries to contain it. He breaks him a little bit more, and then he tries to contain it. And like, scenes with him when he's he's walking down the hallway, and he's calm for a moment, and then he loses his shit for a moment, and then he does that, like, three or four times while he walks down the hallway. Those scenes, I think, are are better representations of of how to do horror how to do suspense and creepy and eerie than you know putting a bunch of slime and blood on on somebody and having them walk around with an axe you know jack himself more hurt than the people he's trying to get to walk dragging an axe in his leg through the snow grunting and breathing in in this big matrix is in in itself is actually a, a truly terrifying idea because he is the everyman because mm-hmm. he's uh he's he's not he's not someone that's that you don't believe could go crazy you believe this dude could go crazy and it's like oh shit and he is going crazy do you think that any movies stack up to the shining in terms of the psychological depth so i well i think like um not because of the twist aspect but I think movies like Martin Scorsese's um, like Shutter Island, I think that movie requ- requires from both the director, the cast, and the viewer an agreement that things don't necessarily work here in the same way things work other places. In that film, there is an element of like, is there something paranormal going on? Or are these people crazy? And it turns out that they're crazy. Where in The Shining, it's it's probably the opposite. I think that's maybe one of the only films that come to mind when I think of uh, something within the similar genre that plays the same way as far as a psychological game with, with the three elements going on. Would you say that The Shining is in Kubrick's top tier as a filmmaker? In Kubrick's top tier? Yeah, would you, would you say that The Shining is in his A-list of films? Or would you maybe demote it? If if you're just talking about the film, it's probably not like an A-list film. I th- I think that they, it would probably be hard for people to watch The Shining and say like, wait, this is the you know the greatest director of all time that everybody's talking about. But at the same time, when when you understand the 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 set designed from inside of his brain, what he has, what what he's putting into certain actors what he's trying to get the the process of making the film i think it that gives it a giant boost you know not just above other films but it it for me makes it what it's definitely one of my favorite kubrick films like i've said before my my top four are are not everybody's top four but i think the shining is actually like way up there because of all the different elements that play in it plus it was it, I actually saw 
The Shining through seeing Twister. The movie Twister, they go uh, they go to a drive-in, and The Shining is playing at the drive-in. <laughs> and the and just that the, was your introduction. Yeah, Danny encountered the twins right there. I couldn't watch Twister because the scene from The Shining was in it. It would scare the shit out of me when I got to that part. So I'd have to skip it. I couldn't watch. It wasn't Twister that was scary. It was The Shining. It's inside of it. Horrifying. Horrifying double film. Ruined my favorite Helen Hunt film for a while. Wow. Truly terrifying. You know, I had a similar experience when I rented uh, Space Jam and they had a preview to this animated Batman movie, Sub-Zero. I was so psyched about Sub-Zero. I didn't have any interest at all in Space Jam. (laughs) So you got to use fuck this. Yeah. (laughs) But, but. But I ask you the same question. Where do you think The Shining lines up compared to other films? Well, here's the thing. I would actually say that The Shining is probably Stanley Kubrick's most rewatchable movie. And as I get older, I value rewatchability maybe more than anything else when it comes to a film. But that i don't i don't i also feel like that's not necessarily a, a fair critique because you can take a look at the work of uh, i don't know Lars von Trier and his movies generally are like long grueling novels you will not want to rewatch any of his movies uh probably within a year of having completed it the first time and so i would actually say that the shining is maybe not one of stanley kubrick's best films I would put it on like the B team. Mm-hmm. I would say that uh, Paths of Glory, Barry Lyndon, maybe Doctor Strange Love, and Eyes Wide Shut would be the A team, and then The Shining would be number one at the top of the B team. But I think, I think a lot of people would agree with that. But it, I think because its position in media is different than a lot of the horror films around it. A because it's a Kubrick film and mm-hmm. there's there's maybe at the time maybe there's not the, the super high expectations, but anybody who goes back to watch any one of his films in twenty nineteen is going back with the expectation that this is, you know, top tier Kino. This is the best shit you can get. Uh and I think that where the sh- shining's importance to the rest of the horror genre, showing people how to use a score appropriately finally. There's so many horror films from before this that don't have a score that actually truly makes the rest the the scene unsettling. I mean, if the scene's not unsettling, the score didn't contribute too much. And I think after that, because I mean, we enter the '80s, the golden era of horror. You find a lot of really good uses of the score in, and I honestly believe a lot of it's following suit. I think that every time Kubrick put out a film. Every film that came out after that was borrowing something from what he did. It is one of his few movies where he does not rely on a classical music score. They have that ambient Native American, uh, you know, sounds that are so iconic now. You know, you can revisit that and it can just mentally place you back into the vibe of the film. Mm -hmm. uh, Hearing only a few seconds of it. It is, it, it, yeah, it, it's definitely unrivaled. And as far as its importance, as far as the uh, horror genre goes, I think it is number two to The Exorcist. I, I, I think it'll continue to be iconic in the decades to come. But it is only a matter of time before they remake it yet again. Yeah. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw, I'm gonna throw this to you. Who do you cast in each of those roles? 
<laughs> All right. Um, 2019 release date. 2019 release date. Jack. Um, what? Who's the 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 guy that plays Hans Landa? Um, Christoph Christoph Waltz. Oh my god, that is a very out of left field. He's also old as fuck. But yeah. I mean, I could definitely see that. Well, I because I I think he would do a great descent into madness from from a a believable writer, you know, a, a believable character into a a creepy, scary, distorted man. I think his accent would go along perfect oh, with it. Absolutely. You know, based off of your choice, you know, that that's got me thinking. I'm thinking Jack Torrance, receding hairline. I'm gonna cast Hans as Jack <laughs> for the remake. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who do you make got the is Jack and Danny conspiracy a little bit more believable? <laughs> yeah, uh, who do you got is Wendy and uh, I mean Danny. That that's kind of a difficult pick because obviously child actors are not as well. I don't known. know any of them. I was gonna I was gonna say Shia LaBeouf, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but old young kid Shia LaBeouf. Sure. <laughs> uh, Wendy obviously would have to go with Leslie Jones. I mean, she's basically the, the <laughs> no Wendy. I don't know, but like, uh, probably someone like Emma Stone will end up in that role, uh, or Scarlett Johansson. You know, that's probably who will end up in that role. Well, Emma uh, Stone has that similar body type to Shelley Duvall. It just kind of shaped like a mop, you know? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some some uh, spaghetti noodles in a rubber band, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but like. Honestly, I would like to see Wendy explored a little bit more, at least as far as like dialogue that isn't cut as exposition-y as it can be for Wendy. She doesn't always need to to say like kind of what she's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I was going to ask you because you started talking about the fact that uh, you maybe didn't necessarily view wendy as a two-dimensional character and that is something that has been a big complaint you know stephen king decided to make that his cause as of late do you actually think that she's a two-dimensional character or do you think she has depth to her that we're just perhaps not seeing well i think i think that obviously shelly duvall's not she's not you know a great actor or anything but i think that if you sit and watch wendy's her 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 own breakdown she very much goes from um you know already kind of anxiety stricken and as she turns into you know, getting attacked and harassed and you know terrified of even walking around corners i think that is an exploration of that fear you know the specifically the fear that a mother has to protect her child knowing that she is incompetent in this situation. Uh, she she obviously rises to the occasion and accomplishes her goal, right? She saves herself and her son. Uh, they go completely uninjured, essentially. <clears throat> I don't think that saying that because, and that's what I think King's complaint is. It's a very 2019 complaint saying that because she's crying and because she's scared, that she doesn't have depth as a character. When she wasn't scared for the reasons she's scared by the time the movies end, like whatever she was scared about before that's gone. She doesn't care about being away from home anymore. Now she fucking cares about the, the house is literally alive and trying to kill her helpless ass self and her son. They're equally helpless. Right. Right. Uh, what about 
Dick Halloran. Oh, ha- or yeah, it's just Dick Halloran. He's not mm-hmm. a, an Irishman here. Uh, actually, <laughs> you know, there might be there might be a tie-in to this new Shining film that is coming out uh, based on Doctor Sleep with the sequel to It, because Dick Halloran is featured in It. In I don't know if you read the book, but there's a, a fire at a bar in Derry, and Dick Halloran happens to be friends with. Uh, one of the boy's fathers and they managed to escape and there's a sequence and apparently that sequence is going to be adapted in this new film coming out. So uh, yeah, there could be a, 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 a brewing universe of sorts, I guess at Warner brothers when it comes to Stephen King material, but who would you think could fill in the shoes of the great Scatman Crothers? Well, here, here's the thing. He is the like the audience in a lot of ways. Like he or he explains a lot to the audience, right? But um, him explaining the different rooms and stuff to Wendy, or talking about the history, uh, or Kubrick's use of him in order to show how disorienting the the building is. Specifically, going into the freezer. I've I've wasn't into film when I first saw it, but now whenever I watch the film and. He opens up the freezer with one hand and then the shot from inside of it, the freezer opens the other way and he's doing the other hand. That has always been a major, a major like, like, like head fuck for me because it ruins the layout of the whole building. It makes everything seem it gets in a different spot. And right, right. The, he's, he's sort of the audience's conduit to the underlining story about, about the building. And I honestly don't know. I, it's, it, Knowing the times, right, I could just say, like, oh, they'd give it to Idris Elba or whatever. Realistically, I I don't think I could cast anybody in the film, honestly. Like, yeah, Christoph Waltz would be a lot of fun, but the these are characters that I think are explored really well. And I, w- I would just be thinking too much of what other people had already done in my attempt to cast those roles, you know? It's hard to not not be like well can he do what jack nicholson did like it's hard to not just request that i i, I don't think a remake or, or or a new adaptation would be beneficial at all and i mean i mean just technology also would be a flaw within that story it's like oh what everybody's service is going to be out of reach for, for, like <laughs> yeah you can't just you can't call somebody and i mean that that offers op- bad opportunities for uh you know, like just just saying, like, oh no, we don't have cell service out here for X reason. When I did, I really feel like one of the strong points to The Shining is things don't just uh, happen for because we need the story mm-hmm. to work like this. You know, that the, the things that happen carry through the story. I think that like one of the problems in casting it would be finding people that that match up well enough like so you could probably cast someone like like lou gossett jr right could you but is he alive what, lou, lou gossett jr yeah he's alive he's real old but he's alive i think he's like 90 i don't i i think he might be too old to act is he too old to he's walk? 82 he can walk around and talk <laughs> for a little bit <laughs> but but i mean the the acting the acting pool for people that both look mature enough and have uh, a strong enough acting background to like like the for the fan base to really accept is pretty limited, you know. Also, Lou Gossett, that that's that's a good choice for like nineteen eighty six, maybe. 
I'm bit. still into it. <laughs> On the wire cut down my dreams. Well, he's he's one of those guys who won an Academy Award and then used that clout to get roles in like 400 shitty movies immediately afterward. Actually, yeah, he, and mostly talk shit about other people that did more and better than he did. But it's... <laughs> I, I'm looking at his IMDb right now. He's got he's actually going to be in the Watchmen TV show as old man. So <laughs> see, he works, dude. We could. I'm fucking writing. I'm gonna write the spec script now. Where actually Lou Gossett Jr. plays Danny, and I'm race. I'm race and age swapping this film, dude. Yeah, I mean he does keep busy. It seems he took kind of a break for a while, but 2017, 2018, 2019 is looking real big for him. Lou Gossett Jr.'s comeback year. I called it. One other thing I wanted to touch on before we wrap about The Shining is the end shot which i i feel like i read was a last minute edition where we are slow zooming in on jack being featured in the photo being absorbed into the history of this house what is your take on that do you think there's any kind of double meaning to that or is it as direct as maybe it seems well i i i have different i have different takes is it is um, another stab uh, from Kubrick to like elites within his community that you know, keep a lot of actors and filmmakers from doing what they want to do. And uh, it also, I guess, it features a number of like prominent people from different periods, and um, like Kubrick edited it himself. Um, it's hard it's hard to know like what he's trying to convey with that if that's building on the story that uh, jack is just a, another one of these people that the hotel has turned crazy like have all these people been victims of the hotel at some point or was this the that that visual representation of jack being embodied by somebody in a different period you know and then you're being exposed to who that was at the end it's hard. it's 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 I bounce between the two ideas. That is it again. Thank you again for popping on, and uh, we will do this again in about ten episodes. That's the rule here. Hey, right on. Thanks again for having me on. Yeah.